privacy. I do not grant private audiences to unidentified persons. I am Marcus Antonius. I know who you are. What are you at the moment? Envoy of Rome, proconsul of all the Roman Empire to the east of Italy. An impressive title. Worthy, perhaps, of a private audience. Without a treaty of alliance with Egypt, you could not hold the territories under your command. True. Possibly. Then, Lord Antony, you come before me as a suppliant. If you choose to regard me as such. I do. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. Dare ask the proconsul of the Roman Empire? I asked it of Julius Caesar. I demand it of you. You're listening to episode 95 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Cleopatra brought physical and psychological calamity to Elizabeth Taylor in epic proportions, but she survived like a queen. During production, Elizabeth Taylor nearly died three times. She received death threats by post. Studio executives and insurance agents policed her body relentlessly. While she lay in bed in the hospital, thanks to their mismanagement, they plotted to replace her. Studio executives expected Liz to work 30 days in a row without a break at one point. During this time, she dumped husband number four. Then she began a red-hot affair with a man who would become husband number five and six. The Vatican condemned her. A U.S. congresswoman from Georgia argued on the House floor that Elizabeth Taylor was an undesirable and should be denied permission to return to the United States. Paparazzi hounded her nonstop. One night, her gown caught fire while she danced with a director at a party. Elizabeth feared she might be stoned to death by thousands of extras on set one day, thanks to the bad publicity. Elizabeth suffered from pneumonia, bronchitis, chronic back pain, multiflu, phlebitis, migraines, tooth infections, and injuries on set, not to mention two black eyes and a bruised nose from a romantic weekend away with Richard Burton. In many ways, Cleopatra can be read as the story of Elizabeth Taylor's career in Hollywood. She had been consistently used, manipulated, and endangered by men who underestimated her to their own disadvantage. Like Cleopatra, Elizabeth was a queen, a queen of the screen. She had been acting in front of a camera since she was nine years old, and by this time in her career had a supreme command of her image in Hollywood. Directors and co-stars marveled at the way she could walk onto a studio set and immediately identify problems with the costume, the set, or even camera angle. Walter Wanger, who had 40 years' experience as a producer, observed that Elizabeth had enough knowledge about show business to edit variety with her left hand. Elizabeth had agreed to play the role for a million dollars. 
While Fox executives discussed that figure, Elizabeth attached further stipulations. In addition to the salary, she wanted 10% of the gross income. The picture had to be made outside the United States for tax purposes. She asked for script changes. She wanted Sidney Gwilleroff to be borrowed from Metro to do her hair. Over time, the contract demands expanded. Fox should pay her $3,000 a week for living expenses. The studio would provide two penthouses in the Dorchester when they shot in the Pinewood studio in London. In Rome, they would provide her with a villa. They would pay first-class travel accommodation for Liz, Eddie, her children, and her agent. For everyday use, she wanted a Rolls-Royce of her make and model. The studio would agree to shoot the picture in Todd A.O. rather than in CinemaScope, the widescreen photography Daryl Zanuck had developed when the studio was in trouble and had to compete with television. Mike Todd, husband number three, had financed Todd A.O. widescreen, and his, as his widow, Elizabeth would profit. And as always, Elizabeth had written in her contract that she would not report to the studio for two days of her menstrual period each month. And she also had a clause about how if they went over schedule, she would get an additional $50,000 each week. On the lot in Rome, Fox had a building constructed for Elizabeth. Inside included a lounge, a wig room, a dressing room, a, ha a hair and makeup room equipped with bath and shower. And it had an office for Eddie, who at the time was trying to pass himself off as a producer. When Elizabeth toured the place, she remarked, isn't this a bit much? The understatement of a true queen. Although she signed the deal that looked great on paper, the production dragged on for years and left her shattered by the end. Still, Elizabeth survived. She rewrote the rules about what was permissible for women to do in the public eye. Women were supposed to fall into simple categories of good or bad. And Elizabeth said, to hell with that. Initially, 20th Century Fox fought against casting Elizabeth in the role. They wanted someone on contract or someone less demanding. But there was really no one else who could have pulled it off. Producer Walter Wanger told critics, no Liz, no Cleo. The combination of the screen epic and the personal drama was a heady publicity cocktail. The press wrote a million words on the Cleopatra backstory, and the public ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In the diary that Wanger kept during production, which he later published, he noted that journalists told him that the biggest story of 1962 was Cleopatra, without a doubt. Despite all the mudslinging she endured, Liz came out of it gloating that success was the best deodorant. Looking at the production history, it's tempting to use the front office strategy as a textbook definition of hubris. From the initial projection of a $2 million budget and 64-day shooting schedule, to the belief that the Theta Barra script from 1917 would suffice with some minor revision, the studio made countless penny-wise and pound-foolish decisions. 
Fox executives blamed the writers, the producer, the directors, and mostly Elizabeth Taylor for driving up the costs. Some people estimate that it reached as much as $44 million. But a closer examination locates the problem with a sea of yes-men who had no plan and threw money around like drunken sailors. Director Joseph Mankiewicz recalled that Cleopatra was the hardest three pictures he ever made. Cleopatra, he said, was conceived in emergency, shot in hysteria, and wound up in blind panic. Elizabeth Taylor makes a less than auspicious entrance in this picture. She tumbles out of a carpet with her bottom in the air and lands at Caesar's feet. Caesar, of course, played by Rex Harrison. She recovers almost instantly, wearing an orange sheath over a simple white robe and understated hair and makeup. She cuts a figure that is more regal in dimension than Caesar's. When Elizabeth Taylor walks over to the table with maps on display, she hovers over them with a level glance and tells Caesar that his maps are no good. Nothing, and I mean nothing, gets a man's attention, like criticizing his maps or his directions. She takes the military advantage over the man in the gladiator attire. Suddenly, he's taken off guard. As Cleopatra inches towards the throne of Egypt, she must use feminine cunning and wiles to get there, much like Elizabeth had to do in Hollywood. Cleopatra skirts the back passages of the palace to spy on the Roman general and his entourage. She plays it like a haughty queen and an adoring woman with Rex Harrison. In the meantime, she takes notes and learns from the Roman conqueror. Rex Harrison is really good in the role. Even though his Caesar is supposed to be great love, I am struck by how handily Elizabeth remains remote and full of scorn. While Caesar gnaws hungrily at her neck and angles for her lips, Elizabeth throws devastating comments about his macho entitlement. Does Caesar think he can do what he likes with her? Why doesn't he put on some laurel leaves when he makes love? She sneers at him. Like Cleopatra, Elizabeth was used to men who thought they owned her. She doesn't want his bravado. What makes her fall for Caesar ultimately is the vulnerability he shows. The same was true for Antony on screen and with the affair with Burton in real life. For her entrance into Rome, the scene that's probably the most talked about in the picture, 1,000 things could have gone haywire. Most importantly, Elizabeth was terrified about what might happen to her while she sat perched high and alone on the throne for the procession into the Forum in Rome. Not long before they filmed the scene, a supplement published by the Vatican contained an article which condemned Elizabeth Taylor in no uncertain terms, even though they never really mentioned her by name directly. Instead of naming her, the paper referred to her as Madam or Dear Lady. The Vatican newspaper editorial argued that Elizabeth was unfit to adopt a child, as she was in the process of doing, because she was guilty of erotic vagrancy. The author charged her with treating the marriage sacrament as a game where she could change partners at will. 
the author compares Liz to a black widow. Quote, if your marriage is dead, then we have to say, as they say in Rome, that it was killed dead. The trouble, my dear lady, is that you are killing too many of them, even considering the one that was finished by natural solution. There remain three husbands buried with no other motive than a greater love that killed the one before. The leading Italian press followed suit. Newspapers declared Liz was out of style in Rome. No one, they wrote, wanted to hear anything more about her clothes, her health, her husband's or children. Some editorials suggested that she should pack her bags. Il Tempo newspaper labeled her as an undesirable. Negative publicity roared in the background as they were scheduled to film Cleopatra's entrance into Rome. Positioned high and alone, save for that child uh, that was playing Caesarian, her son on screen, Elizabeth felt like a sitting duck. There were security officers in the crowd dressed as extras, but in a crowd of several thousand, some estimates said it was 6,000, it couldn't have come as great comfort. Liz worried the crowd of Italians might agree with the Vatican. They could throw stones or climb up and tear her down. The studio, as usual, prioritized the shoot over her personal welfare. The crowd was supposed to shout Cleopatra. Once the cameras rolled, a strange thing happened. Throngs of extras rushed towards the queen's float in the procession. They shouted all right, but it wasn't for Cleopatra. They chanted Liz, 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 Baki, Baki. They were calling for kisses from their picture queen. Elizabeth controlled the waves of emotion from terror to relief, and on screen she remains placid. Rex Harrison, Richard Burton, and Joe Mankiewicz could have done nothing less than marvel at the self-composed queen who winks from the throne. Elizabeth conquered the crowd and the pronouncements of doom from the church. She stared it all down. The first half of the picture is great, but it's the second half that sold the tickets or the DVDs. We want to see the lovers on screen together. When Burton meets Taylor on board the barge for what is technically Egyptian soil, he drinks too much and becomes morose and full of self-pity. There are clear parallels to their real-life relationship here. Mankiewicz was canny about injecting the script with a dynamic between the two stars. He was close to them. Joe fielded calls all night and listened to long heart-to-heart -heart chats with Liz and Dick. He channeled their reservations and their lust that the whole thing was faded by the gods into the script. Antony shows up for the banquet wearing his best toga made of leopard skin and teal silk. The queen has orchestrated the entertainment. Dancers wheel in a drunken Bacchus who canoodles with a double for Cleopatra, a stand-in wearing the same costume as the dinner host. Antony mistakenly believes that he can take over the show, and he jumps up and drunkenly kisses the queen's double. 
But then he notices that Cleopatra has left the room. She has seen this scene already too many times, and she remains the woman behind the curtain. The bedroom scene plays out with a bit of violence and her scorn. He's clumsy and slices up the chiffon curtain, which makes you worry about his sexual prowess. Elizabeth in bed burns bright with scorn as she wears her dead Caesar coin necklace to bed. She condemns him for coming to her, running over with wine and self-pity. When Burton rips off the necklace, he vows he will never be free of her. I suppose the gold coins were as good as a crystal ball for scrying their future. In their next scene together, Burton is narcotized by their lovemaking. He's disarmed in Cleopatra's bath. He's trying to make an important decision about which type of milk best softens a beard. He's made human and tame by her love. This is the only scene in the picture where he doesn't overact nor try to upstage Elizabeth or play the big important man. He isn't Antony, Caesar's heir apparent. He's just a man in love. I should note that Wanger's diary records that Burton's mistress, Pat, whom he brought with him to Rome, was on set watching the shoot with Antony in Cleopatra's bath. Wanger had asked Pat to leave two days running. After the Battle of Actium, where Antony abandoned ship and could see nothing but his queen sailing away and chased after her, Burton resumes the mantle of self-pity. It seems like he's on the therapist's couch when he talks about his masculine hang-ups. He shouts at Elizabeth about how he left because his master called, meaning her, and we see the man behind the warrior. A man's shame, Burton's shame, is that he felt too much, loved too deeply. He should have, he felt, been able to coast along with Sybil always there, his wife, while he had Pat on the side or some other mistress, and Elizabeth too if he wanted her. He wanted to stay in control. Burton believed that he was de-sexed and driven witless by his hunger, his passion for Elizabeth Taylor, and he resented her for it at some level. But when they're on screen together, their affair looks inevitable. He matches her fire and even her scorn. From a distance, you can see their passion rising like the sun. But it would burn out and consume Elizabeth especially. Still, his poetry, his sonorous voice, his brawny physique, and his melancholy were too tempting to refuse. Burton promised an epic romance. Eddie Fisher was a cartoon reel by comparison. Irene Sharaf rejected Walter Wanger's invitation to design the costumes in 1958. She joked that there was no way to do the costumes for Cleopatra without making it look like they were done for Aida. Later, after she heard the treatment Mankiewicz had in mind, with a view of Cleopatra as a formidable tactician and world leader holding her own against the men, Irene changed her mind. She signed for $75,000. Of the existing footage, Irene noted, the about 10 minutes that had been shot in London, 
the costumes were wholly inadequate for the cold climate. Some cast members, she noted, photographed a shade of blue as the result of frigid spring temperatures. Irene suggests that the weather and inadequate clothes were responsible for Elizabeth's case of pneumonia, which led to her first near-death experience on this set. To organize the clothes for Elizabeth Taylor, Irene placed them in three categories. Ceremonial costumes based on historical remnants, the clothes the upper-class women of the time might have worn, and the third category used the oldest known garment, the jalaba. Irene conducted research before she picked up her sketch pad. Archaeological finds depict Cleopatra in an elaborate crown and collar. Irene observed in fragments of sculpture and coins that Cleopatra was plump, had a large nose, and that her hair shared the same sort of dressing as important Roman matrons of the time. In the Cairo Museum, Irene found a statue that gave her the key to Cleopatra's wardrobe. The statue was headless, but the figure wore a tight-fitting bodice made of what was most likely trapunto, an early Egyptian form of quilting. Silk jersey was also a key fabric for Irene during costume production. She believed that when it was pleated, it resembled the way material looked on statues of the era. In addition to silk jersey, Irene used wool, gauze, and light cotton. Many of the ceremonial robes were embellished with heavy embroidery. For the scene where Cleopatra enters Rome, Irene needed a showstopper. She created a look that cost the studio $2,000. The gown was gold lame. It was made with a shell pattern and embroidered with gold bullion thread. The gown was worn under a cape made of gold kid skin. The winged feathers of Isis were etched to scale. Cleopatra's headdress was a crown topped with a pair of cobras that circle the sun. Irene recalled that studio publicity exaggerated the cost of the ensemble many times over. Walter Wanger once did so to impress the Baroness Rothschild, claiming that the ceremonial outfit cost $7,000. Wanger was caught off guard when the Baroness replied that that figure was nothing. She couldn't even get a raincoat in Balenciaga for less than $7,000. Mankiewicz and Wanger were more worried about Rex Harrison's costumes than Cleopatra's. He didn't look the part. In Harrison's own words, the Roman costumes made him look like an old Charlie, which nearly makes me feel sorry for him. Harrison's arms and legs were scrawny and looked withered and old under the togas. Irene solved the problem with a use of long sleeves and padded inserts over Harrison's chest, arms, and thighs. She added thicker proportions to his chest shield and body armor. Irene produced miracles for Harrison's form. You can't tell he's padded to the gills she succeeded in giving him a warrior's physique. For Burton, Irene emphasized his barrel chest, brawny shoulders, and his rugby player thighs with short skirts. He's made up to be male beefcake. 
For the scene where Cleopatra commands on your knees, Burton wears the skimpiest skirt in the picture. It barely covers his manhood. Cleopatra was number one at the box office in 1963. Over the years, it would turn a big profit. It is a compelling historical melodrama that dazzles the audience. The scale is gigantic as it should be. The drama was worth it. I watch it at least once a year just for the eye makeup and costumes. Each time Elizabeth appears on screen in one of her 58 costumes and a fresh wig and exquisite makeup, it's pure cinema. It's a revelation of truth and beauty. Walter Wanger, a producer whose Hollywood tenure dates back to 1921 with Rudolph Valentino in The Sheik, struggled to regain his former glory. Some critics attribute his precarious employment in the studio to the scandal in 1951 when he shot Jennings Lang in the balls and spent a few months in prison. Lang had been having an affair with Walter Wanger's wife, Joan Bennett. But if anything, the incident boosted Wanger's Hollywood profile. He got many pats on the back. The truth is that he was getting older and hadn't produced as many hits as he did in the peak of his career back in the 1930s and 1940s. He had a limited contract with 20th Century Fox. Fox had hired him in 1958 to do uh, uh, for I Want to Live, which brought Susan Hayward, the queen of the studio, her long-awaited Oscar for Best Actress. Wanger began to develop his idea for Cleopatra about that time in 1958. He envisioned the project as a grand epic about a woman who came close to ruling the world before she was ruined by love. Wanger thought that Elizabeth was born to play the role, that she embodied the singular beauty and sexual allure needed to play the legendary queen. The front office resisted casting Elizabeth Taylor. Joe Moskowitz, who was the right-hand man to Spiros Skouros, the president of Fox, said they didn't need Elizabeth Taylor. Any hundred-dollar-a-week girl could play Cleopatra. Skouros pressed for a star under a contract. Why not Susan Hayward, hot on the heels of her Oscar win? Or why not Joan Collins, who owed the studio a picture? Lou Schrieber, head of production for Fox, and the studio head, Buddy Adler, set an initial budget of a million up to a million two. Schreiber didn't tr- trust Wanger and didn't like that he bucked studio protocol. You were never supposed to go directly to a star or even a star's agent with an offer. There was a line of command, of protocol, how you did things. To keep an eye on Wanger, they assigned Bob Goldstein as head of international production. Initially, the studio had wanted to, to um, shoot in Cinecita, the studio in Rome, but the city was booked out so- solid with the 1960 Summer Olympics. Fox executive made multiple costly trips around the world to scout a location before they eventually settled on Pinewood Studio in London to take advantage of the Edie deal that offered a tax break for Anglo-American productions. Wanger argued from the beginning that England was all wrong. 
when Wanger finally had a tour of Pinewood, he became physically ill. The sound stages were tiny, not nearly big enough to accommodate the scale of their production. The facilities were shambolic. The climate was cold and damp, even though it was spring. Elizabeth was bound to get sick. Wanger knew she was prone to chest infections and bronchitis. By June of 1960, when the sets were built, Elizabeth had still not signed her contract wisely. She kept putting it off so she could get the maximum concessions from the studio without a guarantee on her part. Spiro Skouris arrived in London for a progress report that he could give the investors who were getting antsy. Although he shouted about cutting costs and following a strict budget, those rules did not apply to him. A studio driver met Skouris at the airport. In the back of the car, he had stashed two bottles of the Fox president's favorite scotch and an envelope stuffed with pound notes. He met Skouris, Wanger that is, armed with three years' worth of weather reports, which showed that it would be too cold, rainy, and lack enough sunlight to stand in for Egypt and Rome. Wanger worried about a projected budget that did not account for the five-day work week in England as opposed to the six-day week in Hollywood. They were bound to go over budget. Scorus ignored Wanger's evidence and said they should begin shooting right away. The following month in July, Buddy Adler died of cancer. Bob Goldstein was tapped to replace Buddy as studio head. Wanger was desperate for plasterers and other tradesmen to get the sets built. He was baffled by the English view of work that was immune to bonus incentives for working overtime. He might have drawn a lesson from his own multiple heart attacks and Buddy Adler's untimely death in his 40s to the unhealthy pace of Hollywood production, but he didn't. When Ruben Mamoulian arrived, who was hired to be the director, no one from the studio had been there to meet him in the airport. He wrote furious memos about how he had to carry his own luggage. At the same time, Wanger was receiving frantic telegrams from Eddie about their accommodation, and Elizabeth sent telegrams about getting Sydney signed to do her hair. Wanger was in a pickle over the hairdresser's union. Studio officials in Pinewood said they would not be able to get a work permit for Sydney because the immigration office considered it an affront to their hairdressers. Meanwhile, Elizabeth stressed that she needed Sydney by wire, phone, and in person when she arrived in London. Eventually, the deal Wanger made was that Sydney was not allowed in the studio. He would have to do Elizabeth's hair in the Dorchester. One day, he had to arrive in the studio for, to fix a hair emergency, and it wasn't long before he slammed the door in the face of one of the British hairdressers and all hell broke loose. Meanwhile, the summer in London was bleak and cold. Some days, the temperature never rose above 45 degrees Fahrenheit, or just over 7 degrees Celsius. In his journal, Wanger records how many minutes of sunlight they had in a day. The script still wasn't finished, and after all the input of 15 different screenwriters. It should not have been a surprise when, in March 1961, Elizabeth nearly died of pneumonia and needed an emergency tracheotomy. 
After Elizabeth flew to California to recover and collect an Oscar, the studio changed location to Rome to the studio of Chinachita, and at this time ditched Mamoulian for a new director. By the time Fox executives had approached Joe Mankiewicz to take over, they had already spent $5 million. But Joe wasn't thinking about the mountain of debt or the way it had been mismanaged from the start. Instead, he was dazzled by the bait which the studio dangled in front of him. How about a villa on the French Riviera and a yacht? Joe Mankiewicz was listening. Charlie Feldman, Joe's agent, wagged his finger and brought the writer-director back to earth. He would be murdered by the taxes on those so-called gifts. The studio came up with another shiny incentive. They would purchase Figaro, Joe's production company, on generous terms. The deal for Joe wound up amounting to $3 million. In addition, he could scrap everything Mamoulian had done and start fresh. As Joe would later state in a public spat with Daryl Zanuck that reached the pages of the New York Times, he had asked for three things from the front office when he signed, and the studio only gave him the first two. Joe had asked for Rex Harrison and Richard Burton, recast as Caesar and Antony, and he wanted time to rewrite the script before they began shooting. What Mankiewicz could not have known is that by the time he finished the picture, he would be a physical wreck, and he would strike the production from his list of credits whenever possible. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton had met before, back in 1953, at a party in a house owned by Jean Simmons and her husband Stuart Granger in Bel Air. Elizabeth, at the time, was married to her second husband, Michael Wilding. Burton was there, cast as the robe, or in the robe. He was still new to the film colony. Burton was playing the big man poolside, trying to impress Humphrey Bogart, when he spied Elizabeth in a lounge chair, reading a book and remote from all the conversation around her. From the moment he laid eyes on her, Elizabeth stirred Burton's inner poet. He wrote of seeing her that first time. She was lavish. She was a dark, unyielding largesse. She was, in short, too bloody much. And not only that, she was totally ignoring me. He also noted her breasts were apocalyptic. They would topple empires. By this time in 1953, Elizabeth would have witnessed many men who were new to the studio system. She thought Burton was a blowhard, a show-off, that he hadn't earned the right to grandstand. Two different accounts of their first meeting on set and Chinachita share the same indifference on Liz's part to meeting Burton. In one recollection, Liz swanned into the studio in mink and stilettos and swept past her leading men, Rex Harrison and Richard Burton, as though they were doormen in front of the Waldorf Astoria. She went right up to her director, Joe Mankiewicz, and held out her hand for him to kiss. The other version has it that they met in costume on set. Liz was polite but standoffish. Eyewitness accounts report that Burton either fawned over her or that he made cracks about her weight to take her off guard. 
The day they shot their first scene together, the formality disappeared. Burton arrived on set so hungover from the night before, he could barely function. His hands shook so badly, he couldn't even drink a cup of coffee. Liz noticed and was won over by his fragile state. She later recalled, he was quivering from head to foot and there were grog blossoms, you know, from booze all over his face. Elizabeth held the coffee cup for him. He was vulnerable, sweet and shaky, she noted. Then he blew a line, he the great stage actor, and she fell for him. She noted, if it had been a planned campaign, Caesar himself could not have planned it better. If it's true that Burton told the the crew that he would make a conquest of the star, as he reportedly had done with each leading lady except for Julie Andrews, his success was nearly guaranteed after their first day together on set. It was only a matter of time. As shooting progressed, Burton complained to Joe Mankiewicz that Elizabeth wasn't doing anything, wasn't giving him anything in their scenes together. Joe took him aside to see the rushes. In the screening room, Burton saw her stillness, how Elizabeth's method of underplay drew the camera and the audience into a closeness, a rapture. This gave Burton an epiphany. He realized he had been trained in a completely different style of acting for the stage, which relied more on movement. During their work together for Cleopatra and other pictures, Burton learned a great deal from Elizabeth about how to act for the screen. In time, she would remind him of it whenever he became too full of himself. As the production developed, Mankiewicz was struggling to meet the Herculean effort necessary for his double duty as writer and director. He would direct all day and write all night. Joe had a plan to release the production as two separate three-hour films that would arrive in cinema simultaneously. The first picture was devoted to Cleopatra and Caesar, the second picture to Cleopatra and Antony. In order to meet a grueling schedule, he took amphetamine injections on set. Then Joe had a pre-existing problem with eczema, where his fingers became raw and bled, a condition that was exacerbated by stress. It was perhaps a symbolic malady for a writer. When it flared up, he wore thick white gloves that film editors wore. By the time the film wrapped, Joe was in a wheelchair from a mishap with an injection that was administered too close to his sciatic nerve. He was wearing the white gloves. He was plagued by insomnia from the syringes full of speed. And I might add, he was a wreck from the suits from the front office and the insurance company who had harangued him about the budget and schedule for months. Mankiewicz had tried to bargain for a five-day work week in November 1961 so he could spend all weekend writing. The studio shut him down. They used a kind of abuser's mentality by telling him that they accepted his request to, f- to film in Rome because of the six-day work week. They made the concession now it was time for him to deliver. They made the impossible schedule his problem, not theirs. Wanger, on his part, tried to reason with the studio that Joe could not very well write, direct, and keep an eagle eye on the budget at the same time. 
Fox officials shouted back that they were a laughing stock and that the picture was the biggest disaster in film history. To Dodge studio executives, Wanger admits in his diary that he kept two sets of books, the real one and the one they showed the front office. There was usually a $2 million difference between the two ledgers. Wanger also at different times lied about how much footage they shot just to block complaints. For all the shouting the studio officials did over budget, it never stopped them from jetting back and forth to Rome. During one trip that Scorus made to Rome in November 1961, he ordered 27 people connected to the picture to his hotel room, where he then spent an hour giving out to them about the skyrocketing budget. Wanger at one point intervened and asked, why the hysteria? Scorus shellacked him as Wanger put it, for another 15 minutes. Then every person in the room added the hours to their overtime. That same evening, Liz and Eddie hosted a dinner for Scorus. Wanger noted that Liz could talk to the president of Fox like no one else could. Liz asked Scorus, why do you care how much Cleopatra costs? Fox pictures have been lousy. At least this one will be great, though expensive. Perhaps Scorus didn't mind Elizabeth talking that way because he felt she had nothing to lose by telling him the truth. Pressure from the studio created solidarity among the crew and cast. When Fox cut the budget and took away Rex Harrison's trailer and car and driver, the star retaliated with a profane monologue of threats and abuse to production manager Sid Rogel. Rex refused to work until all was restored. Later, when executives threatened to pull the plug before they had finished, he vowed to finance the rest of the shoot if necessary. Rex was never more popular on set. By March 1962, Scorus was converted. He finally began to talk about the quality of the picture rather than the budget. He knew that only a major hit at the box office would satisfy the board of directors. In addition to the pressure to finish the film, Joe had to field requests from the global press about the Taylor-Burton romance. Joe thought that the affair might be good publicity for the picture and that it would help him on set. Mankiewicz felt that Burton might be a good influence on Liz, that he might make sure she arrived on time and was prepared. Burton did organize rehearsals with Liz so that by the time they were on set, their scenes were nearly perfect. At one point, Joe grew wary that Burton was exploiting the affair for his own gain. When Joe had everyone agree in the cast and crew to keep the liaison under wraps, Burton's people, unprompted, released a statement to the press denying that there was anything between the two stars, but no one had asked the question. After the statement was released, the reporters descended like jackals. Suddenly, Burton's name was everywhere. Elizabeth's dear friend, Montgomery Clift, had a similar reaction to the news of Liz's new romance. Bessie May was being used by a Hollywood social climber, an opportunist, he said. Wanger also noted in his diary that thanks to the affair, Burton became a huge star and a household name overnight and Burton's salary on future offers had doubled in size. 
Catholic publications in America had taken a cue from the Vatican and denounced Elizabeth. Georgia State Congresswoman Iris Blitch stood on the floor of the House and gave a blistering speech about the Taylor Burton rumors. Blitch argued that communists were laughing in America over the scandal. The Reds liked to blame capitalists for wanton depravity, as was in evidence with the Hollywood morals on display in Rome. Conservatives in Hollywood rushed to take up the fight against Liz. Hedda Hopper was in the um, middle of publishing her second memoir when she rushed to include a prefatory chapter on the latest scandal uh, with Liz. The paparazzi continued to be relentless in Rome. The demand was so high for stories about Liz and Burton that the photographers were planted everywhere and used creative ways to reach the stars. A pair of photographers showed up one day at Burton's door dressed as priests. One rich Italian man that Wanger knew socially said that he should borrow his yacht one day to take Liz and a group out on a Sunday and sail to Capri. When the party was out at sea, Liz noticed something behind a curtain and called out. The yacht owner had a cameraman stashed there shooting uh, footage for a newsreel. And everyone on the set in Rome fed stories to the press for a payout. In addition to local and international press, Hollywood had this custom where they brought columnists to set and placed it on the account. Wanger argued with studio president Scorus to end the, the press junket practice. Wanger wrote in a letter, For years I have claimed that this is the only industry in America that financed its own blackmail. Meanwhile, problems with the production mounted. The footage was shipped back to Hollywood to be processed. It took a week or 10 days to turn around. Cinematographer Leon Shamroy received telegrams about the quality of the film. One frantic wire from the film colony identified a problem with the Todd AO camera technology, which had a habit of emitting a humming sound. Fox editing found that they could hear the camera noise and some of the reels, and everything had to be reshot. Fox had leased beach pop property in Anzio for $150,000 from Prince Borghese for the Battle of Actium scene. The prince had neglected to mention that the beach was full of mines from the war. Experts had to be called in to find and remove the landmines. Also next to the property was a NATO firing range. The studio had to coordinate their production with the military drills next door. At one point, women in the cast went on strike. The extras who played handmaidens and servants protested that the China Cheetah lot, that their costumes were too skimpy. They raised an objection. Walter, Walter Wanger later dismissed the protesters. He said that there were so many wolf whistles from men watching the protesters at the picket line. The women wore casual clothes that were more revealing than studio costumes. Then they had problems with the elephants who wouldn't cooperate. And when the studio tried to replace them, the owner filed a $100,000 lawsuit for slandering his animals. And the rainy, rainy season that 
started in the late fall of 1961, made Chinachita feel more like Pinewood in London. There were other calamities, like the first anniversary party for Spartacus, hosted by Kirk Douglas. Elizabeth wore a gown trimmed with ostrich feathers. On the dance floor with Joe Mankiewicz, Liz inadvertently stepped on a book of matches, which ignited and set the gown ablaze. One of the musicians luckily jumped from the bandstand and put the flames out with his bare hands. For most of the uh, Taylor Burton romance, Sybil Burton pretended not to notice and, you know, went on as everything was fine until Eddie forced her to acknowledge the affair. She explained that Richard was a serial cheat, but he always returned to her. Not this time, Eddie told her, everything was different. One day, Sybil lost control and raised hell on set. Production had to be shut for the day. Burton then told Elizabeth that he could never leave his wife and marry her. Elizabeth swallowed a bottle of Secanol and nearly died. The third time she nearly died was also because of Burton. They went off for the Easter holiday by the sea. Paparazzi had discovered the location for their tryst and set up shop. Liz and Dick were trapped inside hiding from the photographers. They drank and drank heavily. He gave her a pair of black eyes and bruised her nose in his drunken uh, attack. It took three weeks for the bruises to disappear and delayed filming further. At one point during their romantic weekend, Burton goaded her by declaring that she wasn't willing to die for him. Elizabeth insisted she was and downed a, ha a handful of pills. Burton assumed it was a joke, like it was vitamin C or something, until she fell asleep and he couldn't wake her. Then he rushed Elizabeth to the hospital. He was a Scorpio. She was a Pisces. If you will permit me one blue observation, she was dickmatized and helpless to do anything about it. She thought that Richard Burton was her fate. He wasn't meek and he didn't grovel like the fourth husband that Burton referred to as the busboy. Burton was sex, poetry, moods, and passion. He was the fire to her cool waters. In one scene, Cleopatra tells Antony, without you, this is not a world I want to live in, much less conquer. It said everything about their years to come. The following books helped me to write the episode. How to Be a Movie Star, Elizabeth Taylor in Hollywood by William J. Mann, published in 2009. Furious Love, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton and the Marriage of the Century, published in 2010. My Life with Cleopatra, The Making of a Hollywood Classic by Walter Wanger and Joe Hyams, published in 1963. The Cleopatra Papers, a private correspondence by Jack Brodsky and Nathan Weiss, published in 1963. Broadway and Hollywood, Costumes Designed by Irene Sharaf, by Irene Sharaf, published in 1976. The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics by Sidney Stern, published in 2019. Join me next time for episode 96 when I talk about Esther Williams in Million Dollar Mermaid from 1952. Thanks for listening.